2: L.A.S. Studios. I'm Antonia Cerejido, host of Norco 80, and welcome to the first of two bonus episodes for the series. Recently, I invited two experts on doomsday preparation for a virtual Q and A event, looking at preppers, prepper culture today, and the history of the phenomenon. These two guests are Paige Ferrari, a producer on the reality TV show Doomsday Preppers that aired on the National Geographic channel from 2011 to 2014, and also Bradley Garrett, author of the book Bunker, Building for the End Times. Before we dove into the topic of survivalism, I started first by asking Brad about his relationship to the city of Norco.
1: Yeah, strangely enough, I I drew I grew up in uh, Riverside, California, right next to Norco, um, and we always thought of Norco as Horse Town. Uh, that was the the place we went when we were kids to sort of hide out in the orange groves and go ride horses. Um, it felt like a world away from L.A., but also a world away from the Inland Empire. Um, you know, there was a lot of sort of tension in the, in those days, the the eighties and nineties, with sort of. Um, People moving to the Inland Empire and gentrification and sprawl and people in Norco trying to retain a, a rural lifestyle, you know, um, keeping their land, keeping their horses, uh, building bunkers. <laughs> it was a very interesting place to grow up. But yeah, it, Norco was sort of um, kind of a rural oasis within the, the sprawl of Southern California.
2: You know, it's, it's really good to hear you saying that also because one of the crazy things is that we thought we'd be doing a lot of this podcast in person, but the pandemic hit, we didn't actually get to meet the horses of Norco. So it's good to get another firsthand <laughs> account. But you didn't know about the robbery when you were growing up. Had you heard of it?
1: Well, so I was born in 1981 and it was a year after the robbery. So it wasn't on my radar. Um, you know, the, the memories that I have of Norco are um, of of tax shops and horse parades. They had this down the main street in Norco, they have this amazing parade every year where people bring out their horses and, and the fire department brings on their fire engines. It, it feels like a very rural affair, but yeah, I didn't know about the robbery. I mean, I, you know, as we moved through the eighties and the inland empire became this sort of like, you know, battleground uh, of gentrification A lot of that maybe was was buried to history. So it was really a pleasure for me to listen to the podcast and and sort of fill in my own personal history through it.
2: That's awesome. And Paige, you started working on National Geographic's Doomsday Preppers in 2010, 2011. I think it must have been 2011 when I started. And uh, did you know a lot about preppers before working on that show?
0: You know, I, I didn't know anything, I didn't know what the word prepper meant, and I didn't know any of the terminology. Um, But once I started out, it it seemed strangely familiar to me. And I think um, that's because I'm from Central Valley, California. I'm from a town called Turlock, which is um, probably not that different from Norco in the sense that it's very much this rural oasis. So as I started to meet these preppers and cast them for the show, I was like, "Oh, I kind of know you. I kind of know you. You remind me of someone I know.
2: How does the casting on a show like
0: that work? Uh, Well, for that show, it was really challenging. Um, Because I'm sure, as Brad could tell you, one of the central tenets of prepping is operational security, OPSEC. So the last thing a real prepper would want to do is take my call and go on National Geographic showing their preps. So it was kind of like a seduction. We would go to um, conferences. We would go on message boards and just kind of start these conversations, um, which were usually me sort of like, Asking just to see a little bit of the preps and then a little bit more, and slowly kind of building a relationship where they trusted us.
2: Watching the show, though, you do get the impression that the people who do share are like very excited to share.
0: Well, I think we were helped by uh, something I found to be like a a paradox at the center of prepping, which is that you're not supposed to tell anybody about what you're doing, but it costs a ton of money, it takes a ton of time, and for many people, it is their pride and joy. You know, I would say like a a real prepper, you have to prepare to be denied three to five times. Like they'll hang up on you, they'll call you a government agent, they'll post your emails on the forums. And then like three days later, they'll be like, would you like to see my bunker?
2: (laughs) That's awesome. Let's start off with a little bit of the show. You sent me some of your most memorable clips from the show. And so this first one is a clip of a man named Martin Colville. And I wanted to start with this clip because I think it really kind of illustrates like where the country was when you started shooting the show.
3: After the 2008 economic crash, Martin and Sarah were among the many millions of Americans who lost their home to foreclosure. Their big rig truck was all they had left.
0: Hi, welcome to our home.
3: (laughs) They now live and prep out of its 53-square-foot sleeper cap, the size of most Americans' master closet.
4: Since our home is mobile, we can't carry as much as you might store at your own home. I've got stuff stashed just about everywhere I can stash it in here. A little bit of dog food. <laughs> After the collapse, there's not gonna be factories. I'm gonna be able to make
1: clothes. could make a shirt for Marty out of the camel. I have a stash of Dry food, and I have two layers of it behind this cabinet.
3: Dehydrated food not only lasts longer, it is two to four times lighter than fresher canned supplies, making it an ideal food source for the mobile prepper.
2: Yeah, so Martin talks about the 2008 financial crisis. I'm curious for both of you, what do you think that moment, how did that impact the prepper community?
0: Well, I'll go ahead and just quickly speak about Martin um, Yeah. I mean, as you heard from the story, that was um, the basis for him kind of becoming a full-time mobile prepper. And um, for many of the preppers we talked to, that was just a huge, I mean, there were several events. I would say Katrina was one of them. Y2K was an early one, September 11th. But 2008 was the big one for sort of deciding that they needed to kind of take their safety into their own hands and they couldn't really trust the systems anymore.
1: That's precisely what I encountered as well when I when I spoke to preppers for my book um, people told me that you know we we used to live in a state of security that was provided by the government. Um, and now that we've moved into a kind of more neoliberal environment where um, more uh, trust is being put in private markets and corporations, that people didn't feel that they could trust the state to take care of them. And they certainly certainly couldn't turn to corporations to take care of them in the event of a disaster. And so um, there, you know, it's kind of, it, it feels like something new, but it's actually a return. You know, this is the way that Americans imagine we used to live, right. That we, we would live off the land, we would be self-sufficient. So there is a kind of, you know, frontier fantasy attached to this as well. But I think it's, it's also a realization of of the realities of the world that we live in now, you know, as the, the social safety net has been sort of hacked away (laughs) over the years. um, People feel more of a sense that um, they need to take responsibility for their, for their own safety.
2: Martin obviously is an example of somebody who uh, was prepping not in later in, we're going to see clips of people who, you know, perhaps have more money who prep in a more like luxurious way. Did you feel like most preppers were of a certain class or, or, or background?
0: But I probably can speak more broadly than I can, but I would say one of the surprises that I found when I started uh, talking to so many preppers is that um, prepping is really expensive. This is not a poor man's activity. And just to find out like how much money and how much luxury, as you said, could be poured into prepping um, was kind of a surprise to me.
1: Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, in terms of the demographics of preppers, I was surprised by how diverse the community was. Um, And I I have to admit that I made an attempt to reach out to diverse communities in the course of this, but I found them over and over again. Um, And uh, often what I found was that people who had grown up in difficult conditions, you know, they took prepping seriously because they had experienced adversity They knew what it felt like. Um, There's there's some amazing research that came out in the last couple of years by uh, Anna Maria Bounds, a researcher in New York, and she worked with um, urban prepper communities. And a lot of them, what they had said is that after going through particular events, you know, Sandy, Katrina, you know, experiencing what it feels like to be without water or power uh, for a long time, and then sort of correlating that. With their childhoods, where they had experienced these kind of everyday emergencies of having to deal with crises, Um, you know that was a trigger for them to take it upon themselves to begin to prep. So, I I mean, you know, I'm I'm sure at some point we'll we'll talk about how prepping has changed over the years. But um, one of the things that I find really striking is that yes, there are these people who are building, you know, multi million dollar bunkers. Um, There's also a lot of people who have made a decision that rather than buying. You know, a second house or a boat. These are the kind of upper middle class preppers. They're going to invest in the bunker. But there's a lot of people who are just prepping for kind of everyday emergencies. Uh, We call it practical prepping, low level prepping. Um, You know, people who are preparing to just make it through three days without any kind of um, uh, state intervention. And that demographic has exploded in in the past decade well
2: one thing that from your book that surprised me brad is that you you wrote that 40 percent of people in the u.s believe that stocking up on supplies or building a bomb shelter is a wiser investment than saving for retirement
1: well i this comes back to the financial crisis right if if you had a 401k or you had you know you had stocks you had savings and you watch those evaporate during the financial crisis then you start thinking about um your future security in material terms, rather than in economic terms, which you know increasingly looks to be very speculative and nebulous. You know, you feel like those things can can disappear, um, and that comes back to the kind of the the social safety net disappearing, right? So I think a lot of people have turned to creating a kind of material backup, whether that's having a backup generator or storing extra food or whatever it might be, to give them a sense of security that the numbers in their bank account or retirement account don't necessarily give them. And, uh, you know, that makes sense as, you know, precarity increases that that people are going to look to um, their material surroundings, you know, the land they have, what they can store, what they can build, what they can make as a marker of how they're going to be able to weather crises in the future.
0: I was going to add, I don't know if you saw this, Brad, but with Martin. One thing that really stood out to me is that he had experienced like precarity in his life before, obviously, but, you know, very kind of late in the interview process, he, you know, we, he revealed to us that his, his wife who was prepping on the road with him also had cancer and they were trying to keep up with medical bills. And so in a way their prepping activities gave them also control or a way to control their thoughts of the future or what they could face next, even though they were facing something really scary right in the here and now.
1: Yeah, that's that's absolutely something I found um with the people that I interviewed that um you know the the world to many of these preppers feels like it's increasingly out of their control. Um that the 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 existential threats that we faced during the Cold War for instance, when we were thinking about nuclear war, you know, speculative disaster um have been exacerbated by climate change, by um you know, economic precarity by fears of artificial intelligence, um, you know all sorts of things that that people are worried about. And so um, I think it's a I mean just on just on purely psychological terms it's a it's a natural human reaction to think, well, I'm going to take control of what's around me because I can't control those things out there. Um, so I, I write about the bunkers that people build and and the spaces that are being created by this atmosphere as the architecture of dread. I mean I live I live in the mountains and I'm constantly thinking about wildfires like at any moment there I'm waiting for one now we had you know a, a year ago I was sitting here and I was I was breathing ash through this window part of that is because of our media consumption because we're aware of disasters taking place all over the world in a way that we wouldn't have been a few decades ago but you know, a lot of that we also have to realize is, is very real. You know, the frequency and severity of natural disasters, for instance, is is increasing every year. And it's a perfectly rational response to that to think, well, I can't control the climate crisis, for instance, but I can control whether I can evacuate if a fire is coming up this mountain.
2: I think that leads well, sort of the architecture of dread over time leads very well into our next clip um, of Ed and Diane Peden.
4: I am preparing to survive and thrive underground. We live in a decommissioned Atlas E missile site somewhere west of Topeka, Kansas. It's a very large, underground, hardened structure. Keeps us very safe from lots of things
3: had originally chose his home because he feared America would be attacked from above.
4: I first saw this site in 1982. Ronald Reagan was then president, and it seemed to me that nuclear exchange was a real possibility. These days,
3: he thinks there's another ground-level threat that's more likely.
4: The economy is certainly in trouble. In some ways, the economy has already collapsed. And everybody thought the economy was just going to bounce back. It was just a little recession. Well, that hasn't happened. It's not happening. There's going to be desperation and there's going to be potential violence.
2: Paige, any juicy background detail on how you got Diane and Ed? I mean, that is quite the underground bunker. Diane and and Ed are like a special elite Kind of prepper, I
0: think, just because of that that Atlas missile silo, which I just looked it up the other day because I was kind of reminiscing. I believe they bought it for forty two thousand dollars back in the day, and there it's on the market for three point four million. Oh my gosh! Currently, it that I saw. So I guess they they did something right. They were really interesting. They were very very difficult to get, and I'm you know I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure they loved us. I'm not sure they loved us coming into their bunker. They represent a very we wanted to show them because they're a very different type of prepper than you might. Um, expect, right? They're not super right-wing, militia-minded people. They're actually kind of of a peace and love 1960s community, communal movement. At one point, our field producer there called me because they were all like in the hot tub together after the shoot, and she was trying to get them to sign releases. And it was very difficult because they did not wish to sign our releases and signed them with the names of Hindu deities and uh, other things. Wow. That was a, that was a crazy shoot, but what an amazing space and like really fascinating, cool people. So did they, they lived there with other people too, or it was just them? It was just them full time, but they definitely had a community kind of spread through that area and they would come there and, you know, they, they basically were kind of like a a healing circle, a drum circle. Um, A lot of them would share food that they grew with each other or healing advice. So they were just a, kind of a, a hippy dippy prepper community.
2: I mean, it's interesting. You hear him talk about how he started prepping for one reason, and now has completely changed his reason. So I'm wondering, Brad, if you have any thoughts on on that.
1: First, I would say that there, that couple is a great indication of how diverse prepping is. Um, you do find that there, there, you know, there's a stereotype about prepping that comes from survivalism. Uh, that these are sort of you know lone wolf white middle aged men you know, with some resources who are bitter and jaded. And actually, you know, the more more time you spend in prepping communities, you find that they're, they are communities, right? They're community minded. And many preppers are are concerned about taking care of their neighbors as well as themselves and their families. Um, so I think, you know, it's important to kind of disrupt some of that narrative. But the motivations for prepping have expanded exponentially over the years. Um, and most preppers that I spoke to um, weren't necessarily prepping for any specific event. They were trying to prep for a range of events. And that's very difficult to do, right? Because if if you're prepping for, um, you know, 14 days underground, uh, waiting out nuclear fallout, that's a very different preparation than prepping for an electromagnetic pulse that's going to wipe out all of your electronic systems.
2: In the show, there was somebody else who also was afraid of an EMP. And I don't think I can you explain that a little bit more what that is?
1: So an EMP is um, there are two ways that they could be produced primarily. So one is through a coronal mass ejection. This happens naturally. Um, The sun every once in a while just sort of burps plasma. And you get these big um, electromagnetic interferences that hit the Earth's atmosphere. Um, there was a very famous event in the 1800s called the Carrington event, um, which took place and, and it um, magnetically charged the ionosphere over the earth, and it fried all of the telegraph lines across Canada. People in, the, in New York City were reading the paper by the Northern Lights or by the Borealis. So that's one way this could happen. The other way it could happen is through a high altitude explosion of an atomic device, you know, that would actually be much more damaging than a direct hit. And it's much easier to unleash. The US government has been quite concerned over the past decade about the possibility of an EMP. And if you think about what that did to telegraph lines in the 1800s, imagine what it would do today to all of our electronics. And so how are people
2: um, prepping for an EMP?
1: Well, so they build they build Faraday cages. It, so it's a cage that will shield a, an EMP. You can you can actually build one. I watched a guy at a at a conference I went to, PrepperCon. I watched a guy build this out of a, a trash can, a yoga mat, and some duct tape, so that you could stuff your electronics into it and protect them from from an explosion.
0: Your microwave um, could be one. You could put them in your microwave if they're small enough, right? Yeah,
1: yeah but people also there's a resurgence in people buying vehicles that are um that don't have electronic components. So I've I've got a 1972 GMC truck sitting outside which you know if if an EMP were to were to smack that I can easily replace some components and be back on the road. Um but there's kind of a resurgence in in oldies car Buying by preppers who want who want to have something that they can sort of repair in the event of an EMP.
2: That's awesome. I, you, I would, yeah. If it happened, I would hope I'd be close to you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but how far do you get? You know, if there's no fuel.
2: <laughs> right. Right. You could wrap all your things in tin
1: foil
0: if I just want like a really a like makeshift one. Your your most essential electronics, right, Brad? Just wrap them up.
1: Yep you can but getting back to your question you know you so you think about these events you know what could happen what might happen and once you start speculating about a whole range of disasters the way that you prep for those becomes quite complicated and it looks crazy to other people but it, it is based on science mm-hmm. in many cases and it and it is quite a quite rational response to what might take place
2: i did say this in the podcast i have like prepper tendencies I have a rooftop like urban garden and actually this has been a very hard week for me because I spent months growing uh tomato seedlings and this group of starlings like ate all of them (laughs) I know I was really upset I was like up on my roof like chasing after these birds so (laughs) I uh and I understand the pride part too like Paige you were talking earlier about like I was really excited for those tomatoes and I'm very upset about this but speaking of things that are people's pride, let's play a second clip of Eden and Diane.
3: I didn't think I could live underground because I really enjoy light, the sunlight. The Paytons relieve the stresses of subterranean living in their own way. This jacuzzi, which Ed and Diane installed in 2000. Our hot tub here is
4: not just about surviving. This is about thriving and we love it. We don't get in the hot tub with suits because the laundry never rinses thoroughly.
2: Nobody seems to mind. I mean, you gotta love a luxury uh, survivalist jacuzzi. (laughs) I really love that. And in general, like the idea of like luxury and survivalism is very interesting to me. Brad, you wrote that you went to a luxury eco forest in Chiang Mai. So I'm curious, what was that experience like?
1: Yeah, it was uh, it was kind of incredible. It was a, a Canadian um, who had moved to Thailand. Um, he fell in love with someone he met at a video store, and he moved to Thailand, and he worked on oil rigs. And so he was sort of um, offshore for two, three months at a time. And he started reading these news stories about home abductions and murders and terrible things, and was concerned about his, his family. Um, so he started moving into more and more fortified compounds and then eventually at some point decided that they were just going to build a bunker because land was inexpensive and construction was cheap and um, I went to see the bunker it was just outside of, of Chiang Mai and uh, it was an incredible thing uh, it was a kind of um in a very and again a very rural location um, and he had built this sort of block fortress uh, that had no windows on the bottom floor it had sort of uh, traps. So if you got through, you know, the front gate, you could be trapped between the gate and the front door. Um, very advanced surveillance systems. But once you got into the building, um, it was open air to the outside and it had sunlight streaming through and fruit uh, vines, passion fruit growing from the walls. Um, there was a pool that was sort of sun drenched and then, and it was glass lined and underneath the pool, was a nuclear fallout shelter that was, um, that doubled as a day spa. Um, so th- yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was an absolutely amazing space. And then when, so you, it was totally, it was totally off the grid. Um, he was operating on solar, um, had dug septic tanks and, and had their own, they had their own water source. And when you went up to the roof where the solar panels were, you could see in the distance, um, a, a Buddhist temple and there was a, there was a, a 50 foot or yeah 50 foot tall gold Buddha that could be seen from the roof. Um, and he, I, you know, one of the things that always surprised me about the preppers that I met is that they were very calm. I expected them to be anxious people, right. But, you know, he felt that he had, um, he had taken things into his own hands. he had preparations in place. They had built this place that was, you know, as Ed said, you know, where they wouldn't just survive but thrive. and um it was his it was his little piece of utopia, you know, and his family was perfectly happy there. Uh, it was a it was a really amazing thing to find the, the villagers who lived around it in um a very different kind of house, yeah, <laughs> were not were not very happy about the bunker being built there. Um, but, um, you know, for him and his family, it, it felt like the right thing to do. And he, he followed through on his vision.
2: Did you talk to him about how the villagers felt?
1: I did. Yeah. And, and he said, I, I talked to him about, about it in the context of security, because as Paige mentioned, it's, it's very, you know, it's hard to get access to these communities. And you also don't want to disrespect what they're doing. Right. And so I, I pitched it in the context of security and I said, look, you know, if, if something were to go wrong, wouldn't you want to be able to depend on your neighbors, to call on them, to trade with them, you know, to hunker down as a community? You know, you, you don't really want to lock yourself in this building. Right. And and he he told me, you know what, you're absolutely right. And a couple of months later, after I had left, he sent me a message and said that he threw a massive party inside the fortress oh for all God. of the community and invited everyone in, yeah. So there, it's, I mean, this is one of the great things about research, right, is, and, and you know, whether you're shooting a documentary or whether you're you're doing ethnographic research, um, if you spend time with communities, you don't just see what they're doing, you become a part of the story. Um, and I, I always saw my time in these communities as an opportunity to sort of, um, you know, open up different possibilities about what they might do with those spaces.
2: That's amazing. Paige, did you, um, did you think about like the luxury aspect of the prepper movement? Did you, um, maybe at prepper Con, not just in people's own homes? Yeah, I mean, certainly there there was a spread,
0: but like certainly some people were on the luxury end, and that kind of is uh, or was at the time sort of a motto within the the communities. It was like we're we're not surviving, we're thriving, and you would hear that all the time in in different ways. And I would say like I wouldn't say this was everyone because some preppers were like a little more intense and a, a little more scary, but uh, like there was like a, a certain joy. To a lot of it, which I don't think I expected either. It was kind it was like joyful and fun for them to show us these things. It was kind of like, you know, finally someone gets to see this thing i put my, my heart and soul into.
2: I'm Antonia Cerejido. You're listening to a special bonus episode of Norco 80. More after the break. So now um, we're going to transition to someone who I don't think I would describe as as a calm, And I don't think Paige, you would either. Um, Our final clips are from a man named Tim Ralston. Something crazy is going to happen to him in this episode. But first, we're going to play a clip where he talks about his invention, the Croval.
4: I do consider myself a prepper entrepreneur. James, have you seen this done before?
3: Tim and his business partners, James and Nick have made a career from inventing survival tools that they believe will give them an edge in the apocalypse.
4: When we invent the product, we're thinking honestly of ourselves and our families and what we need to do. If there's gonna be an EMP attack, cool.
3: Today, one of their latest inventions has arrived back from the manufacturer.
4: Nice. Gentlemen, Kroval meeting. It's
3: called the Crowville.
4: I came up with the idea for the Croville when I was repacking all my bags. It's taking 13 different tools that weigh about 45 pounds into one tool, and it only weighs five pounds.
2: So, yeah, so maybe first you want to tell us a little bit more about Tim Ralston and how you found him, Paige. So Tim Ralston, I
0: think, as he even said himself, we, we saw him as our entrepreneur prepper. And he certainly was. And the crovel was his invention. He brought crovels to the office, which having those things around seems pretty dangerous now in retrospect. But like a lot of prepper inventions, it is actually, it's like, you know, it's linked to something that someone might carry in the military. It's like a lightweight, all-purpose tool. But then it has this overlay of sort of machismo and kind of fun to it. It's like, you can kill zombies with it. You can open your beer with it. So he um, was one of the people... It was very excited to be on the show
2: because he had something to sell. Brad, did you come across a lot of entrepreneurial preppers?
1: The people who were clearly selling things that I met, usually they were selling um, bunkers themselves or selling space in communities. In my book, I call them the dread merchants. They would prey on people's fears. They would tell people the world is getting worse. You know, if you don't invest now, you're going to be in trouble. And I made a very clear effort to sort of cleave them from the people who were moving into those communities. And a lot of those people that were moving into the communities, yes, they were buying security, but often that security was like an empty concrete shell, you know, in the middle of a prairie somewhere or, you know, space in a silo. And what I often found was that they had incredible minds for engineering, creativity, innovation. I watched one, one of the preppers that I worked with he realized that he couldn't wash his clothes after we were in the bunker for about a week, and so he got a five-gallon bucket and a plunger, and drilled a hole in the lid and made a washing machine. Oh wow! <laughs> and he washed, yeah, he washed everyone's clothes. It was it was fantastic, and I, I found out later that he was a mechanical engineer. So yeah, I I ran into a lot of people that that had incredible visions, uh, for what they were going to build. I was most impressed with the, with the residents of these communities and how they um, uh, created systems of mutual support. you know so you know how to do electrical wiring and you know how to grow food and now we've got a community. Now we can make it through anything. Um, they would sort of piece things together, uh, you know skills with a community with complementary skills.
2: And when you when you say the separation between the dread merchants and the communities, did, did you see the dread merchants themselves also as survivalists or like, can you talk a little bit more about that, that dynamic?
1: Yes. In the sense that if you didn't have tendencies to prep, you never would have imagined building these communities, but a lot of them struck me as uh, they, they worked in real estate. They were selling a very particular kind of real estate. Um, and it's a, it's a real estate that is meant to alleviate anxiety about, you know these fears that we have. Strangely, I think it was effective, in many cases. You know, once people had made the investment and started building their bunkers, they they did feel a sense of peace um, that they had they had put the money in the right place. But the dread merchants themselves, um, many of them were were millionaires many times over. Many of them also had left space for themselves in the communities they'd built. So why would you do that unless you believed in what you were selling? I mean, I think there was an aspect of that.
2: You're describing something that could be seen as like as
1: predatory. And I think that was the case in some cases. But, um, you know, it's it's hard to cleave, right? I mean, if someone is a really good salesman um, or salesperson, they're going to give you that pitch, right? If they're convincing, you're going to believe it. That's the kind of second veil. you know the first one is trying to get access to these communities, which as Paige mentioned is really difficult. but the second one is trying to punch through the garbage and there was one community that I went to in Texas um, where the CEO ended up being arrested by the FBI. So they were building this kind of multi-million dollar uh, doomsday community. And it turned out that he had taken money from what he thought was a Colombian drug cartel and laundered it through the community and it was a it was a sting operation and the FBI descended on the community and he's now in federal prison for a very long time. There is an aspect of that, right? I mean the, the more the world feels to people like it's going in a direction they're not comfortable with, the more there's an opportunity for, for predatory doomsday real estate entrepreneurship.
2: Yeah. You wrote that one of the most sobering moments was that when you were at PrepperCon, you saw bulletproof backpacks for children for sale. Can you tell me about that experience?
1: Yeah. This was obviously pre-pandemic. I think it was 2018 I went there. There was a a convention with about 10,000 people, people selling all sorts of things, naturalist products organic foods collatal silver uh, emp proof solar panels and you know it was it was all kind of entertaining I mean there were even vehicles uh, there was a there was a group of Mormons from Ogden Utah that were building these incredible like six-wheel drive RVs that were bulletproof that you could sleep in and live out of um, but yeah I ran across this booth where people were, were creating backpacks for children that could be turned around and double as shields. They were bulletproof backpacks. And it was just such a grim commentary on the state of society. I spoke to another person who worked in construction at that conference, and he said that the school shootings were a fantastic opportunity for um, new construction in creating shooter-proof schools. And that was part of what fed my idea of the architecture of dread. You know, when you you build a new school and part of your planning process is how do we stop an active shooter? Do we put bunkers in classrooms, which has happened in Oklahoma? Do we, you know, make the front desks bulletproof? Do we give the kids bulletproof shields? When there's a market for that, it's a clear indication of a decline of a society. And instead of addressing... The root causes of those issues people are thinking about how to profit off of it which is you know it's really disturbing
2: i think that going from like maybe like goofy to like terrifying is something that i find really disturbing about sort like the prepper community or the the discourse around prep prepping i guess this is a weird like segue but i do think that the following clip from tim ralston's show sort of shows It's also kind of goofy, but it does show, like, just that there's this, like, underlying violence to a lot of what we're talking about.
4: I think every American household should have a gun. Never have enough guns, never enough ammo.
3: As a prepper, Tim knows that at any moment, the unexpected can happen. What happened? What happened? Damn thing, uh, just
4: misfired on it. Get a truck up and ready, he's got to go to the hospital. Yeah.
1: yeah, okay.
3: Tim? Tim? Tim, look at me.
2: So, obviously, that's like an extremely dramatic thing that Tim shot himself in the finger and then, and then passed out. I mean, I, Paige, Paige, I wonder, how do you remember that happening?
0: Yeah, I remember because I was on the phone. I wasn't in the desert with them. I was on the phone with our field producer uh, who was with him, who actually shows up in that clip just trying to figure out what's happening. And yeah, I mean, Tim, they were out with the kids doing shooting practice, and it's kind of unclear because they were changing lenses on the camera what exactly happened. But he shot his finger, and then he went into shock. Luckily, we have an EMT on site, and they had to helicopter him out of the desert. And then they had to they had to reconstruct his his thumb because he kind of like lost the, the, the top part of it. So they had kind of connected the top part to the base, the stump of the thumb. So he had, you know, next time we saw him, he came by the offices with a new thumb. Oh, my, it's like it's like
2: it's surreal. It's like it's such a surreal thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and he and and Tim went on to go to prepper conventions. I mean, he was still selling the Croville. Um, despite that trauma, many people knew him as the guy who had shot his finger on Doomsday Preppers, but he, he kept going.
2: Like, yeah, it probably helped him sell the Croville mm-hmm. that he became famous for, like, having this, like, really dramatic moment on the show. Mm-hmm. Like, for you, Paige, doing the show, like, how did it feel emotionally to produce that show?
0: Well, you know, I think at the time, because it was a little while ago, and I think, I mean, I was younger, and I also think. Culturally, we hadn't you know, addressed some things in our country in terms of or per, like, fully faced them in terms of, of gun violence and whatnot. So to me, it just felt like kind of a wild ride and it felt kind of quirky and fun. And I think like someone like Tim Ralston is a responsible gun owner despite that accident. But I also, looking back, think that looking at some of the stuff does remind me that there is like a malignancy and a malignant stripe to some of this. And a lot of it comes down to, I think, weaponry and guns and violence. You know, I say there's like two kinds of preppers that I met a lot. One is like the sort of burdened hero who sees the future and needs to tell everyone, like, get prepared. And one is kind of the guy who's like, don't come to my house or I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> and that that other kind, I think, looking back, is a little scarier when viewed through a 2021
2: lens. That's an interesting... Dichotomy, Brad. Did you did you also find that when you were doing your research?
1: There were times during my research that I was extremely uncomfortable in some of the places that I was, and um, there were clearly people who were dealing with deep seated issues that were manifesting in ways that, yeah, will make other people <laughs> uncomfortable. You know, I also found a lot of those people who were who were practical, people who were hopeful. I keep coming back to the the idea of of diversity, but. I really did meet a lot of people who were who surprised me with their peace and perseverance and dedication to the craft. And they did think about it like that. Growing things, making things, fixing things, building things. I learned so much hanging out with them. So much. And I, I didn't really expect that. I, I went into it similar to Paige thinking, well, this is going to be quirky and interesting. I'm a geographer, so I thought this is a great story about space and how people interact with space and what people are building. Um, and actually, I came away with, you know, some personal stories that actually affected me quite deeply. You know, people who are very concerned about the state of society and the safety of, of, of their community. I learned skills that I still use every day. Like what? <laughs> so... I learned how to do electrical wiring. I learned how to shoot all sorts of guns. I didn't shoot my fingers off. (laughs) Uh, I learned how to work on this truck that I've got now. I've I been growing growing food as well. I also had a, a vegetable tragedy when I tried to grow pumpkins last year and then we had a freeze and all the vines went translucent overnight and it was so devastating. Doesn't it? It I makes know.
2: you appreciate the food ways. Like I had a moment where I was like, it's, I'm glad I'm not depending on myself because <laughs> there wouldn't be it, tomatoes. Yeah. It,
1: exactly. And then you when you grow food, I mean this is a great example. You grow food and then you have such a you feel so much reverence for what is in the grocery store. You go there and you, but also kind of horror. Like, why is all this here? Why can I buy strawberries in the middle of winter? This isn't right, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but you also start thinking through, like, if if I weren't able to go to the grocery store, what would I do? We all had a little taste of that at the beginning of COVID, right? Where like the toilet paper and the water and the pasta started disappearing And we started to feel like, well, what if this keeps going? What if the fresh food disappears? I remember going into the grocery store in LA at the beginning of the pandemic and there was like all the bananas were gone and seeing the empty rack was kind of horrifying. Like what, why bananas? Why did everyone grab those? You know, it causes you to question the kind of infrastructure of life.
0: When I uh, saw the, sorry to cut you off, Brad, no, but no, I just okay. remember when I first saw that, I kind of had, you know, I had a little flashback to my uh, doomsday preppers days where I remember uh, one of our preppers telling us you're four meals away from anarchy.
1: Yeah.
0: And I was like, oh, okay. Well, it's,
1: <laughs> yeah. it's
0: kind of scary. But it
1: makes sense of as to why people were hoarding things at the time. Again, this is a natural psychological response to... Um, And we're, you know, this is happening at the moment, right? Fuel shortages in in the American South and people are running out and filling up every tank they have because, you know, of course, you, you, like if you don't have faith that this system that we built, which is very intricate and complicated, is going to hold together in roughly the same way it has for so many years, um, then it, it, it makes sense that you would stockpile, that you would hoard, that you would hold things back. It doesn't necessarily mean that you wouldn't share them. But it does mean that you might grab them when you know you can. The, but the mistake most people make is they they grab things in, in the midst of a disaster. You know, I just bought a backup generator that runs on propane so I can pull the propane tank off my barbecue and fire up the generator. And I bought it now because I know that the fires are coming in a couple of months. Because if I try to buy the generator then, <laughs> I might not get it. Right.
2: <laughs> right. During working on Norco, I wanted to talk more about prepping, especially because we were in the midst of the pandemic and it, it was just such an interesting question. Like, how did COVID impact the prepping community? So I'm curious, Brad, d- what did you notice? How did it, the community
1: react? Slightly disturbingly, the, the a lot of the preppers that I was in contact with retreated to their bunkers, as I expected. And I called them and said, you know, what? what's the plan here? And they said, uh, this doesn't seem like a huge problem, but we've got the resources to deal with it. So we're just going to hang out for a couple of weeks and see, see how it pans out. Right. There was one community in South Dakota called the X point. This is an incredible place. There's 575 concrete bunkers. They were built during world war II to store munitions. And now it's home to about 50 or 60 families They retreated into their bunkers and after 14 days were able to emerge inside uh, their own bubble that they had created, right? Like everyone had self-isolated. They didn't need to go out to get groceries. They started growing food and they were anticipating something much worse than what happened. And that, that sounds callous now, given how many people have died and how much, you know, tragedy this pandemic has produced, but they were prepared for something much worse you know, so like two weeks into this, I'm scrambling to find bottled water and pasta. And they're like having a barbecue with 40 people outside with no masks. You know, it was it was kind of weird to watch. And I'm like zooming in. I'm like, how are you guys doing? They're like, we're fine. Do you want to come to the bunker community? And I said, I can't because I've got family members that need my help. You know, I can't I can't retreat. But most of them, after about a month, they left. They went home. They went home happily saying, this isn't the disaster we built the bunker for. It was a good insurance policy, but the fatality rate was not 10%. It was one. So we're going home and we'll, we can manage this on a day-to-day. It was kind of horrifying, but it also gave me a little bit of hope. Like, okay, well, if they're, if they're feeling like this is a manageable crisis, it probably is. And they did tell me, you know, this isn't the moment to pull the trigger. Other bunkers that had were, that were sort of like more um, uh, elaborate, multi-million dollar bunkers, they never even asked people to retreat to them. They said, this isn't, this isn't what we're waiting for. Don't worry about it.
2: This isn't when, what is the term? When shit hits the fan?
1: You know, there's another term, uh, the the end of the world as we know it, Teatwaki, which Paige ran into, I'm sure. But this was the end of the world as we know it. I mean, the world that we're emerging into now as we all get vaccinated is going to be a different world. We're experiencing it right now.
2: It's, it sounds like it didn't have a major impact, which I think is interesting. Like it doesn't sound like the, they're like, oh, we're just right on track like we were gonna be doing. Um, we're wrapping up. so I, I did want to end with Paige, if you like if what was your reflection after working on the show? Like what was your what did you feel like you had a big takeaway after producing that for a couple of years? Yeah,
0: I don't, I don't know. Like, I kind of like, hear it when Brad's talking, too. Like, I feel, like, um, very protective a little bit of some of the people that I met because I do feel in many ways they could be viewed as crazy or dangerous in some way that I did not find. I found the vast majority of them to be extraordinarily gracious and to be displaying sort of qualities that are, like, very, you know, like, good American qualities, such as, you know, self-sufficiency and independence, that stuff. I, I do think one thing I do think back on, and I think we did not go into, into the show and was a little naive, is that there is another stripe of sort of the sort of maybe closer to survivalist than prepper, I would say, that maybe doesn't have communal best interest at heart. And I think sometimes I, I, I'm glad that I met the other side of the prepper community rather than the uh, more antisocial end of the world. And it's just me and my stuff people.
2: Just one final last question. Like what, yeah, so we're in the future, but like what does the future of prepping look like? Will it still, will it physically be the same? Is it bunkers? Will it it be different? I'm curious, Brad, if you saw like a different model.
1: Um, So I've been in touch with a researcher at Cornell University, Chris Ellis, who does all of the quantitative work that I hate, crunching numbers. And he's been going over FEMA data about uh, preparedness um, and he emailed me two days ago and told me that recent FEMA data indicates that more than thirteen million Americans are prepared to survive for thirty days without food, water, or infrastructure of any kind, which absolutely shocks me. So I, I feel like I feel like we're turning a corner um, in the sense that, you know, we're prepping, you know, as Paige said, it might have been seen as as, you know, kooky or strange or weird or elite. Um, it might have required a lot of money or time or effort. I think we're seeing a lot more people now um, working through prepping on a, on a more practical level, you know, installing solar panels, um, stockpiling a bit of food, you know, getting off the grid, and that it's kind of dovetailing with with our desire to become more sustainable in the context of climate change. I, I feel like the future of prepping is self-sufficiency. But it's self sufficiency in in the name of community, right? Like like we're all gonna do better the more people uh, can take care of themselves. One of the preppers told me at some point that it's like it's like when you're on the airplane and they tell you to put the the oxygen oxygen mask on yourself before someone else, right? Like you you have to make sure that you're okay and then you can go and help other people. And I I think I mean it's a hopeful message, but I feel like that's where where we're headed.
2: That was Bradley Garrett, author of the book Bunker, Building for the End Times. Also joining us was Paige Ferrari, a producer on the National Geographic reality TV show Doomsday Preppers. Please stay tuned for our next episode on gun culture, where we talk to the host of the NPR series No Compromise and to scholar Michael Sierra Arribalo. Thanks for listening.
0: This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. The L.A.S. Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism.